The following message was given by Tim Abbott on Sunday, December 4th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Thank you for being here. Thank you you for talking to each other so passionately during that time. I, uh, we are in the midst of our four-week Advent series. We are looking at the four themes of Advent, of hope, love, joy, and peace. Uh, we began the series last week as Robert led us in looking at the amazing love of Christ from John 3.16. And this week we will be looking at joy Joy is one of those things that I think is, is uh, understood, but difficult. It's one of those things that we connect to how we feel. And so when we hear that we're supposed to have joy, that we, we're supposed to rejoice, be happy, those are difficult things for us to understand because we don't feel them. And so knowing what to do with that is often hard, even though we understand it. I have a little girl named Clementine. She just turned six, and uh, I am genuinely not biased, but she has the most beautiful smile in the entire world. Um, her whole face just, just lights up. It is hard to not smile while she's smiling. Um, her smile is perfect about 98% of the time. The other 2% is when we try to take a picture of her. Um, <laughs> and at that point, we ask her, we say, say Clementine, smile for her, smile for the picture. And what happens next is just painful to watch as her, her lower teeth are the only things that come out. The veins in her neck start popping out. Her eyes get really ridiculously big. And then we say, no, 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 baby, it's, it's okay. You have a beautiful smile. Just smile for us. And she just sticks her neck out further. And the teeth come out a little, little further. And one eye gets, for some reason, smaller. The other one gets, gets bigger. And she just kind of looks like an angry pirate. Um, and that's most of our pictures. For most of us, when we hear that as Christians, we are uh, supposed to be happy and joyful, we become like a six-year-old trying to force a smile on our face. Um, we dutifully say the right words. We try to look the part. We try to look happy, uh, happier than we truly are. Uh, the truth is that lasting joy is something that we as Christians should be marked by. It is something that is, that is promised to us, that we have. Uh, our joy is, is something that should be increasing and, and growing. And yet, most of us realize that's not what we experience. It's not what we feel on, on a consistent basis. And it is certainly not something that is becoming more a part of, of who we are. Uh, David Wells, a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, wrote about this. He said, in a time where science and technology are promising to rewrite the script of life, promising to eliminate more and more diseases, to make life more bearable, While huge companies promise to fill our lives with more goods, at the very same moment, the human spirit is sagging beneath the burden of emptiness. In a time where we have more cures, more entertainment, more conveniences, more things, more stuff, what do we not have more of? Joy. We can't get enough stuff to make that joy possible. We long for it. We pursue it. Whether we are pursuing it in Jesus or not, we want it in our life. But we are often turning to find it in places that it can't be found. 
C.S. Lewis, the great British author, put it this way, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. The happiness, the lasting joy that we are looking for can't be found in something that is temporal, something that can be taken away from us. For Clementine, when she is truly happy, nothing can wipe that smile off her face, and it looks perfect. And for us as Christians, we don't need to just try and be joyful because we think we're commanded to, and, and we shouldn't try to find joy in things that, that can't provide lasting joy. What we need is to understand and believe the promises of God. So whether we experience difficult times or wonderful times, we have a joy that nothing can take away from us. We will be looking together today at Isaiah chapter 9. It gives us and, and breathes into us this joy. This chapter is one of the most loved passages in the Bible. It is often quoted around Christmas time, really focusing on verses 6 and 7, but we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. These verses help us to see, and I think paint a beautiful picture, that, that true joy is difficult. It is hard. But that the joy we have as, as Christians is a promised joy, a joy that will be fulfilled. And it is all because joy came into this world when God sent his son to us. And so um, let's read together uh, from Isaiah chapter 9. If you're using the Bible in front of you, if you're using that pew Bible, it's on page 573. This is Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Uh, thank you for your joy. I pray that you would help us see that clearly today. I pray that you would give us ears to hear as we talk about your word. We thank you for it all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9 is painted against a very bleak, dark backdrop. So this call to joy that we are receiving is, is understood in the midst of darkness. To get a good idea of how dark, um, the, the year is about 700 years before Jesus would come in 732 BC, about 10 years before the northern kingdom of Israel is going to be crushed and defeated by Assyria. The king at this time was a man named Ahaz, and the power of Israel, con con the people of Israel continue to put their hope 
again and again in earthly kings, and that is continuing to disappoint them, and Ahaz will continue that. Ahaz rejects God's word. Isaiah comes to Ahaz with God's word. He rejects that word, and he leads Israel into all kinds of idolatry, and he leads them into captivity and exile. And this will lead the people of Israel to become angry and to start to criticize God. One of the great ongoing debates right now in the world is who is the greatest basketball player of all time, uh, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. And there are many people with false beliefs that believe that LeBron James is somehow greater than Michael Jordan. Just, just as a side note, I am basically the Michael Jordan of this debate. Um, if you want to have this debate, I'm ready to have it at any time. I, I, can, I, can, I can show you that Michael Jordan is greater. But as much as I can overwhelm you with the facts that MJ is so much greater than LeBron, I can also personally acknowledge that if I got on a basketball court with LeBron James, he would score 10,000 points before I would hit the backboard. Uh, he is just that good. People love to critique and to criticize things that are much greater than they are. We've built entire industries around it today. We've, we've come to perfect it. But the country of Israel, the people of Israel, were also really, really good at this. They had made an art out of criticizing and complaining against an almighty God. It was infinitely more wise, more loving, more powerful than all of them combined. And so we find them doing that once again in the previous chapter, here in chapter 8. In verse 19, these people, after, after longing for the promises, longing for better kings, the people just start turning anywhere but God. They start turning to fortune tellers and magicians to help them, to help them see the light, to help them win the victory. They're turning to greater and greater darkness to find light. Then verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8 tell us how dark it is actually going to get for them. It says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their, God, their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the, to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. They have waited on, his, on God and his promises long enough, so they start to criticize and they turn against God. They're angry. God is infinitely greater, wiser, and more powerful than they are, but they start to talk to God with contempt in their voice, and they decide to take matters into their own hands. So they look to the earth but all they find is more darkness. They find distress, more difficulty, more to be anxious about, more to be sad about. And as they turn again and again to try to find the answers here on earth, Isaiah tells us that they will be thrust into thick darkness. And it is in this moment that we are promised light. We are told that these same people are going to have joy, that they are going to rejoice. In verse 1 of chapter 9, of Isaiah, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced darkness, if you've felt Hopeless, if these words, when you hear them, ring true. If you have, 
then you know that when someone feels this level of, of darkness and hopelessness, the last thing they want to do is hear someone preaching about how they need to be happy. Um, joy doesn't just seem distant. It seems impossible. I've dealt personally with depression at several points in my life, and, and so it feels very real to hear words like you have dwelt in a, in a land of deep darkness. And so I just want you to know, if you, are, if you are there today, if you're feeling discouraged, grieving, feeling joyless, God's word to you today and, and our word here doesn't, doesn't, isn't to, to just snap out of it and start being joyful. You don't need to feel guilty because you can't force a good smile on your face. Joy is hard and God is honest about that. And it is because there are so many difficult things in the world. There are difficult things that happen to us and there's so much darkness all around us. The beauty of God's word and the beauty of our Savior is that he sympathizes with our weakness. He is gentle and loving with us when we are weak and discouraged, and he doesn't ignore the reality of the darkness. God doesn't say that darkness and gloom aren't real. The Bible doesn't ignore the problem. The truth is the Bible, that, that, that God and the Bible are the only ones that can see it clearly, that can paint a way for it. We look at our problems often, and we think... If I just make the right decision, I can get myself out of this. If I just pull myself together, if I can just force the right attitude, then I can get myself out of this darkness. That's where God is so good because he sees the darkness clearly. And he knows that, that our position in the darkness is worse than we even realize. He knows that we are completely hopeless to get out of the darkness on our own. In that moment of, of completely feeling lost and hopeless, God sends the light, the only light that there is to have. He sends us a gift, a child. And that child is the light. And with that light comes joy unspeakable. The darkness and the gloom are very real things, but for anyone that knows Jesus, they are not the only real things. Darkness and gloom are reality, but they are not the only reality. It makes it hard to see and to believe anything else. The despair feels so real and it overwhelms the hope that is ours in Christ. The darkness described here was complete. It was personal. It was spiritual. It was moral. It was social. It was political. No part of human existence was left untouched by the darkness that was brought in by sin. No part of humanity was kept in the light. Total darkness, thick darkness was what they experienced, and that was very real. But God comes and He promises joy, and He fulfills that joy. He describes that joy. He is zealous and passionate about your joy. Verse 2 of Isaiah 9 gives us that promise of joy. Talking about God, Isaiah says, You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. You have. You have. Isaiah is a prophet and he is talking about future things. He is talking about things to come. He is talking about the coming of Jesus into this world. But here he is saying, you have done this as if it has already been done. There's a literary technique used by Hebrew prophets primarily in the Bible. And it is called the prophetic perfect tense. It is essentially talking about something that will happen in the future but talking about it like it already has happened. Isaiah uses this language to build the confidence of the people. Our confidence is so great that this will happen. 
that we can talk about it like it already has. We can hear all the good that is going on to happen one day. We can hear multiple sermons about the greatness of heaven, but God knows us so well. We hear those things and he knows that we are going to still say, but what about today? What am I supposed to experience now? What am I supposed to feel now? So God helps us see that these future promises are already accomplished by saying, you have increased the joy of the nation. This rejoicing is a a promise. And when God increases something, he doesn't increase it slightly. We will experience all joy. We will experience the joy of the Lord. Not a subdued, calm joy, but a, a joy that sings out, that rejoices. We will be overwhelmed by joy. Isaiah illustrates this by saying at the end of verse 3, as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is not a reluctant or a hesitant joy. Isaiah compares it with the joys of workers at the harvest, rejoicing that again the harvest has come or dividing the spoil. This is the joy that you have after a huge victory. In my house, I don't believe in letting others win games including my kids. Uh, I get very competitive and my wife rightfully gets mad at me for that um, because our kids lose so much at our house. Um, (laughs) So usually when we are playing a game, she is mouthing the words at me, let them win. And I look right back at her and mouth the words, no way. Um, If my kids are going to beat me, they're going to have to earn that victory. And and uh, so, so on the weekends, we, we often play Mario Kart, uh, and I always win. Um, but a while back, my son Abraham, at the last second, hit me with a red shell. And if you know the game, that's, that's harsh. And, and he, he, he just shot right in front of me and beat me, completely legit, totally beat me. And he shot up and started dancing around, waving his finger in my face, <laughs> shouting. My daughter, who finished dead last, also shot up, started dancing, waving her finger in my face, just as excited as he was. That celebration lasted five days. Um, the, the joy that Isaiah describes here is, is what you see, what you picture in a, in a locker room after after the Super Bowl, after a championship win. Um, it is the joy of, of a great accomplishment, of, of hoping that something great would happen and then it happening. The triumph of God's grace over our darkness is a cause for the greatest celebration. That is the joy and rejoicing that Isaiah is describing here. And that is the joy and rejoicing that is promised to us. Then starting in verse 6, the the passage we're more familiar with, Isaiah tells us how this promised joy will be accomplished. We're told at the beginning of verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. God's answer to everything that has ever hurt us, ever brought us gloom, everything that brought about suffering and darkness, God's answer to all sin and all the impact of sin is a child. God's answer to all of the darkness, all of the works done in the darkness, is to give us his only son as a gift. And then here in Isaiah, we're given four titles of who this child was, would be. So we're not just told there's a child that will come, but we're told who that child would be. Four names to describe 
our Savior Jesus. And these titles build a case. They build the case for why we can have joy no matter what the circumstances, why we can rejoice no matter what is going on around us. The first, we are told in verse 6, that this child is our wonderful counselor. This, this word translated wonderful is, is really kind of closer to the word wonder. And that word had more meaning at one point. Um, the Greek philosopher described it as experiencing something so great that it renders thought and speech impossible. It leaves you speechless when you saw it. When you look out at the sky and you see the stars there, when you look out at the mountains and, and, and you think, who formed this? How is this possible? You are left in wonder. It is a supernatural element to this word, something that is beyond us and would cause us wonder. This word is used 15 times in the Old Testament to describe extraordinary acts of God. Isaiah himself would use this word again to describe God the Father just in a few chapters. This is a direct reference to the fact that Jesus was God. God was coming. Isaiah is telling us that this child will be a miraculous, supernatural counselor, a counselor beyond our understanding, a counselor that knows things that only God could know. The word counselor here is providing wisdom, guidance, direction, a way to move forward, a, a way to move forward in the light in the midst of darkness. We need Jesus at every step of our life. He knows the plans that he has for us, and he's going to guide us and lead us. So we can come to him because he is our patient, good, wonderful counselor. We can come to him with our questions. We can come to him with our struggles. And he is there patiently, gently, but with all the answers, all the answers that we can never come up with on our own. We are so desperate for answers. We are so desperate for guidance that we consistently look to bad advice all the time. We listen to the wrong voices in our search for answers. It happens in the very beginning. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon comments on Jesus as, as counselor, and he says, oh, how we need Jesus as our counselor. It was by a counselor that this world was brought to ruin. It was the evil counsel of Satan that led Adam and Eve to rebel against their maker. It would usher in sin to this world. It was necessary that the world should have a counselor to restore it if it had a counselor to bring destruction to it. As we follow Jesus and obey him, we realize more and more that his counsel to us is truly wonderful. We often struggle with what to do and what to say in, in the midst of this world. We need help. We turn to Jesus and humbly ask him to lead us and to guide us in everything we do. And then he miraculously leads us in the way that we should go. That is a counselor that we need for everything that we do. That is a counselor that we need to turn to each and every day. And that is cause for rejoicing. And then we're told that while he is our wonderful, miraculous counselor, he is also called Mighty God, or literally God the Mighty One. The name of Jesus points again to the fact that he was in fact fully God. The child that was born was God, mighty. This same exact phrase is used to describe God the Father in several places in the Old Testament. Isaiah is leaving no doubt that a child is coming and that this child will be God himself. The word translated mighty here really has the emphasis of, of hero or warrior. 
This child knows things that only God can know, but he is going to accomplish mighty things, things that only God can accomplish. The mightiness of Jesus is magnified by verses 4 and 5 in Isaiah 9, where we were told, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. If, if Jesus is not mighty enough to defeat all enemies, then we have no reason to rejoice. We are in fact hopeless. But Christ did come and he defeated every enemy. All sin that you feel like you are fighting against day in and day out. All sin that you feel the impacts of from the outside day in and day out will be burned in a giant fire so that there is nothing left of it. Sin and death, all the things that cause anxiety, hatred, fighting, broken relationships, broken families, all of it is going to be rolled up and done away with forever. It is certain. It has happened. We don't have to fight as if it is uncertain, as if we wonder if it can truly happen. We can fight against those things with the confidence that Jesus has already defeated them. We will not only see the end of war, but we will see the end of every sinful desire that would lead to war. We have such a mighty, heroic warrior in Jesus that he will not just bring an end to fighting and injustice, but he will bring an end to every sinful thought that would ever lead to fighting and injustice. That is a reason for, for rejoicing. That is a reason for joy to, to abide in us. Everything that we can accomplish within our own power, everything that we can accomplish with, with governments and laws and nations, Jesus went to the cross. And in the moment where he looked weakest, he was mighty to save. He was mighty to defeat the most powerful enemies in existence, things that we have no power against. When he looked weakest, he defeated all of them. What a mighty God we serve. Jesus is the mighty God who has the power to raise the dead, save the lost, and defeat all of our enemies. That is true strength. That will bring about real peace, and that is cause for real rejoicing. And then we are told that this child that will be given to us is, is going to be an everlasting father. This statement might sound confusing. It is, it is not disputing the fact that in the Trinity, we have God the Father and that Jesus is, in fact, the Son. This isn't talking about who he is in relation to the Trinity. This is describing who he is towards his people, how he is with his people. Pastor Sam Storms talking about this statement says, it is a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. He is fatherly, fatherlike in his treatment of us. John chapter 14, Jesus tells us, I will not leave you as orphans. He will love and care for his people like a good father does. He is fatherly in his goodness and compassion. This is who he is. He is his character. He is provider, protector. He shepherds us. He guides us. He promises to be with us through every situation. He does this joyfully and he will do this forever. It will go on and on. He is everlasting. He is gentle and loving like a good father, but he also rejoices over his people like a father with his children. Luke 15, Jesus gives us a story, the parable, some of you are familiar with, the parable of the prodigal son. 
And, and we take from that, that parable the need to repent and to, to, to turn to, to God. Um, but in the context of that, of that parable in Luke 15, the reason that Jesus gives us that parable is important. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of that time are listening to him and they are complaining about Jesus. They're complaining about how much he cares for sinners. And so this parable is a defense of why he cares for sinners so much, why he rejoices so much to see sinners repent. And so he, he, he's, he's saying that, and, he, and, and the parable tells us that the father sees the son returning home. The father immediately runs to him, embraces him, and begins to throw a celebration. Luke thirty-two fifteen tells us that it was, he says, it was right for me to celebrate and rejoice, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He cares about us. He loves us. It was right for him to be happy. It was right for him to be there with sinners. Because the joy that he gets from seeing sinners repent, the joy that all of heaven celebrates when sinners turn to him. Jesus loves us, celebrates us, cares for us like a perfect father. And then finally, we see that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Uh, peace is something that is generally universally agreed on, uh, but often our definition of of peace and how it is accomplished differs uh, from the, most of the world. John Lennon wrote a song uh, that has multiple times been voted to be the greatest song of all time, and it is certainly considered the greatest peace, peace anthem of all time. The song is Imagine. And in that song, Lennon imagines that if there was no governments, no countries, no possessions, and no religion, then everyone would live life in peace. It is, it is a haunting song and a tragically flawed song. Um, I love history, and it doesn't take much to disprove that that wouldn't bring about real peace. Uh, only 100 years ago, not far from here, there was a feud between two families. Hatfield and McCoys fought for nearly 50 years in West Virginia. 60 members of those families died during it, and most of the rest spent their time, rest of their time in jail. What started that feud uh, was a pig. Uh, it was a dispute ho- over who owned a certain pig, a pig that was so important that people would kill over it. If we take John Lennon's logic, then we only have to imagine that there's no pig, and then they would have lived life in peaceful harmony. The truth is, there was nothing special about that pig. Their fight wasn't about politics. It wasn't about governments. It wasn't about religion. It wasn't even about the pig. They fought because of pride, hatred, and envy in their hearts. They fought because they were sinful humans. Most of our efforts at peace are trying to take away the surface level things that we believe cause us to fight. But the truth is that if if those things reside in our heart, if our heart is filled with bitterness, envy, pride, jealousy, if that's in our hearts, then we'll never know peace. There will never be peace. In the beginning of God's word, we have close to, to perfect harmony. We have two brothers and the first brothers recorded in history, one of them kills the other brother because of envy and resentment in his heart. Our peace is disrupted long before there was any organized religion, any established government. And so we are promised a ruler, Jesus. Jesus will rule in such a way that he will bring about true peace, 
Not just the end of fighting, but the end of all the sins that lead us to fight. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus in this way. He said, God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of Christ, the blood of the cross. He will bring an end to the alienation, the enmity that exists between men. He will bring an end to the enmity between God and man, and he will bring an end to the lack of peace that we have in our own hearts and minds. Peace will reign in all of our relationships and in all of our hearts. That is what it means for Jesus to be the Prince of Peace. And then here at the end in verse 7, we're told of his rule and his peace again. He says that the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It will continue to increase. His reign and his peace will go on forever and ever, and that's a good thing. There aren't many leaders that we can look at and say, I want you to keep leading forever. We are promised peace in our hearts now and a kingdom of peace for all eternity. That is cause for rejoicing. Jesus is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That is why our, our joy is absolutely secure, because he is those things. This is why we should rejoice today. What is so wonderful about this passage in Isaiah is that you and I are not the subject of any of the verbs in, in verses 4 through 7. Jesus has and will accomplish everything that we're talking about. Isaiah brings this passage to a climactic conclusion by proclaiming at the end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We said at the beginning, this is not about forcing ourselves to appear joyful. So why can we have joy today? It is because God so joyfully saved us. He rejoices at saving his people. He is passionate. He is zealous about your joy. Jesus, we're told in the book of Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. For those things hard, did he enjoy the cross? No, there are things that are hard in life, but it was joy that took him to the cross. There is no reluctance with God. There's no hesitation with Jesus. He joyfully guides us as our wonderful, miraculous counselor. He rejoices to be the mighty, heroic God that saves his people from every enemy. He is the everlasting father celebrating that his children have returned home, and he is happy to bring peace to a world torn apart by sin. That is the joy of Christmas. We rejoice because he joyfully accomplishes everything that we need. To those that are here today and are not Christians, I, I, just, I just want to encourage you to stop looking for joy in everything but God. Stop looking for everything and everyone around you to make you happy. It's what we all want. Stop looking at the things of this world. Stop looking for things that can't provide to bring you consistent, lasting, unshakable joy. And turn to Jesus. Believe and trust in his very faithful and everlasting promises. Believe and trust that he is all that he says he is, and you will find joy. To those of us who are Christians, we also need to stop looking for joy in everything else but Jesus. 
Stop believing that joy can only be had if we have enough things or if life goes perfectly. There is no greater joy than to know and trust in Jesus. We have a reason to rejoice that is far greater than, than all of our difficulties and disappointments combined. If you have not experienced joy in a long time, if you feel overwhelmed by the darkness and gloom, it is very real and very difficult, and we love you and want to help you and, and love one another deeply in the midst of that. But Jesus, as our light, is also very real, and he is greater than all the darkness. We have a Savior who is wiser, stronger, more long-lasting, and more gentle than everything else we could turn to. You have a home waiting for you and a promise of eternal comfort, a promise that you will never cry again, a promise that you will never sin again, a promise that you will never feel the effects of sin again. That is what Jesus gives you. That is absolutely guaranteed, and that is reason to rejoice. That is an indescribable gift. We're going to take a couple minutes to reflect on Jesus and the joy that we have in him. And then for those that have trusted in Christ and turned to him for forgiveness, we're going to take communion together. If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, I just encourage you to take this time. It's okay. Stay in your seats and consider Jesus. Think about your life and think about what it would be to turn and trust in Jesus. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ as our Savior, we're going to come forward and be reminded that the body of Christ was given for us and the blood of Christ was shed for us. And as you take communion, just know that you can rejoice, remembering Jesus and all that he has done. We can take joy because Christ has taken the crushing weight of sin so that we can have joy everlasting. Father, we thank you and praise you for sending your son into this world, for the, for the indescribable gift of your son. We thank you for all that he is, for all that he has accomplished, for all that he will accomplish. We thank you that those things are secure and firm. Father, and I pray that you would build in us a joy because of that. I pray that you would build in us a joy that is unshakable. Um, as we set our eyes towards you, turn our eyes to you. Father, we know that you will never leave us, forsake us. You will never fail us. And so, Father, we want to turn to you again and again, rejoicing at what you have done in our hearts and lives. We thank you for it all. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message by Tim Abbott, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.